You're listening to the Pulled by the Root podcast. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Heidi Marble. I am overjoyed to be speaking with Leslie Pate McKinnon. I learned about Leslie through the amazing Kate Murphy, who is a psychotherapist. And she said, you must reach out to this incredible human being. I would like to read you Leslie's bio, and then we're going to jump in with some conversation. Leslie is a therapist who specializes in issues that impact families conceived through adoption and third-party reproduction. For three decades, she has been sharing her expertise on these topics at conferences and events across the country and around the world. Her lived experience is that of a first mother who relinquished two sons for adoption in the mid-1960s and a quarter of a century later gave birth and raised IVF twins. Her experiences in both and her extensive academic training have given Leslie a unique perspective into alternative methods of building a family. The tremendous losses inherent in adoption and third-party reproduction are seldom if ever addressed ahead of time with families, which sets them up for irreparable damage and dysfunction. Leslie's passion is educating therapists. She offers online supervision and adoption competency. Her story is included in the book, The Girls Who Went Away, and the documentary, A Girl Like Her. Leslie was interviewed by Robin Roberts on Good Morning America, featured in Dan Abbott's report, Adoption for Adoption, and appeared on The Katie Kirk Show along with her oldest son. She has appeared on CNN and as a consultant to those being reunited on TLC's Long Lost Family. And Leslie is licensed in the state of Georgia. Wow, Leslie. Welcome. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you very much. And I'm very privileged to be here. I got excited when I got your call, mm-hmm. Heidi, because oh. I'm on the the downward slope of oh. life. <laughs> and oh. I want as many people as possible to hear our stories, for us to be able to tell them what adoption is really like rather than them telling us what adoption is like because society is in the fog, if you will, and we need to educate them. So any opportunity I get to tell my story, I always take it, even though I still all these years later get a little bit embarrassed of the details that I have to share because it was the most shaming event in my life. And As far as I've come and as much therapy as I've done, I think part of that shame has just been baked into me. So I no longer think I'm going to be free of it forever. Um, But I do think it's important for people to hear us. And I want to say one thing before I get talking. I still refer to myself as a birth mother. There are many first mothers, natural mothers. I'm using all the terms that other women prefer. And I I don't care what you call me, but I've been calling me, well, except call me to dinner. That was my mother's joke. Um, anyway, I've been referring to myself as a birth mother for so long. It just comes out automatically. So I mean no offense to any other mothers. And I try to respect exactly what they'd like to be called, but it doesn't always stick for me. So pardon me. 
Well, Leslie, I appreciate that because I'm kind of new to adoptee land. And I think a lot of the language, I'm still learning myself. So yes, my disclaimer as well as we are not trying to offend anyone um, for sure. Well, Leslie, when we talked last week, I think the thing that was so refreshing is your candor and your honesty and your acceptance of what occurred and the pain that your sons have felt and that you have felt. And I do agree with you that these are the conversations that really need to happen because the pain starts with, in my opinion, the mothers that gave birth to us. That's where the trauma starts. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to understand the whole entire stratosphere of this in order for change to occur. And I would just love you to, you know, maybe speak about your experience. Take us back to that time when you were making these decisions. Okay. Um, and I noticed when you were born, and that's right where I was, 1965, graduating from high school. And um, I don't know what happened. After, after high school, I became a very loose woman. I smoked cigarettes and because I was going to go off to college and I had to look cool. And I also had sex that summer after high school graduation, and I was pregnant immediately. Um, and I was terrified to tell my parents, of course, anybody would be in that age. And um, my boyfriend at the time said, no sweat, we're getting married. He had just left for college and I was getting ready to go. And he said, I'll come home for the weekend and... Um, we'll talk to our parents together and then we'll go get married. And I said, okay. He came home. His his father insisted that I go see their family friend who was an OBGYN. And of course, I'd never been to an OBGYN and most women know that first little visit is quite a surprise. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of fun. <laughs> no. No. Um, but the doctor did confirm that I was pregnant. And um, so we went home and he went to talk to his parents and I was with mine. And then we got a phone call. His father said that I was merely trying to trap his son. And um, how did he know, how did his son know if this was his child? And his son went, dad please. You know, this has been my high school girlfriend, period, paragraph, and of course it's my child. So um, with that, I kept waiting for him to come over so we could make plans with my folks about how do we do this. I was only 17, so I needed a signature from my parents, and um, he never showed up. Later, I think it was the next day, his mom called to say they had taken him back to school because getting married was not a good idea at all. But if my parents would like some money or there was even an inference, they could find a way to help me with this pregnancy, quote unquote. Please remember, this is pre-Roe versus Wade, um, that they would they'd be glad to throw a little money in and, and help in any way they could. And my mother hung up on him. So um, that was the last I saw of him. And 
my folks explored a couple of options like going to live with some family friends and what to do. But my mother ended up at the priest. Uh, we were Catholic and she ended up talking to him. And of course, he knew right where to go. They had a <laughs> jet line highway from every small town in Florida to the maternity home that I ended up in in Mobile, Alabama. So that's where I went. I went when I was barely four months pregnant. Um, I wasn't showing. I couldn't button the button at my waist, but I certainly wasn't showing. But my parents thought I needed to get on out of town. So that's what I did. And the story for my friends was that I'd had this golden opportunity to go study abroad in France and they wanted to take up on it. So I was sent to France. Well, the truth of the matter was I did have some cousins living in France. And so every letter that I wrote to any friend had to go to France and my cousin mailed it back to America. And then if people wrote me back, it went to France and then she mailed it back to me. Um, and so this was the big, you had to keep up these stories about where you were and what was going on. When I got to the home, Heidi, I was terrified because I thought, ooh, all those bad girls are going to be there. And where I came from, bad girls rolled their T-shirts up, you know, and put cigarettes. And they <laughs> might even have a switchblade down their bobby socks. Who knew? Um, so I was terrified to go in. And when I did, I felt like I was in a college dorm. Here were all these really nice girls, you know, big as could be, all pregnant and sweet as could be, and all scared to death about what was ahead for them. They changed my name. I was Leslie Pate then, so I became Louise Palmer um, because it was the days of monograms. Everything you had was monogrammed, uh, villager dresses and all this, so they kept your initials the same. But the reason for the false names was they didn't really want us to get to know the other girls really the inference was always, you don't want to be friends with any of these girls after you leave. These girls. Uh, okay, well, I'm one of these girls. <laughs> so what are you saying to me here? <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, behind the scenes, we told each other our real names and we did that kind of stuff. I'm one of the few women that I've ever heard that had a really pretty good experience at the maternity home, meaning living with the girls, living in community. We did our own cooking. Um, and the reason I was, I think, in hindsight, looking back, I had such a good experience was I came from an incredibly chaotic home life uh, from the time I was two or three years old, all the way up to 17. You know, you just change the dial on which which flavor of chaos are we going to have today? You know, raging alcoholism, or should we have sexual abuse? Or I was abandoned when I was five by my mom and didn't see her again till I was about 11 or 12. Um, so getting out of all that and being in this nice home with the nuns, um, Everybody was nice and pleasant, and it really felt the safest place I'd been in years. Isn't that something? So um, 
All I did while I was there was crocheted and made uh, baby clothes. My sister had just had a baby two years before. And so I made a whole slew of baby clothes for her and then outfits for myself back in the day when sewing your own clothes um, so that when I went off to college, I'd have this whole new wardrobe. So my time there was pretty good. Now, I did get the the thing that all of us got, which is, of course, you have to give up your baby. A single mother can't raise a baby. You'd have to give it to a two people who have a place for a child and could raise them and give them everything you can't. And, you know, it was just the drill. It got drilled into you. I had a, I wouldn't call it therapy, but I had a session with a social work nun. I think we had them every other week where she'd go through the routine. You are still planning to give up your baby. You know, this is the only thing you can do. It's if you love them, if you really love them and you're not going to be selfish about this, then you will give them to somebody who can raise them without shame. You know, your child would be called a bastard on the playground and you don't want that, do you? That would just be so selfish of you to put that burden on your child. So I went through all the motions. I was feeling very guilty about how bad I'd been. And um, so I was going quite along with everything. Now, the interesting thing is the doctors or the professionals told you nothing about pregnancy. I knew nothing. We just all sat around and compared notes and whatever we talked about was the extent of our knowledge. I didn't know what was going to happen when I got to the hospital. I didn't know anything about childbirth. I'm 17 years old. It was my first time in the hospital. And in fact, when I went into labor, the sister, the head nun, just drove me up to the hospital and said, get out and go in and admit yourself you're in labor and just tell them that. So I did. And um, you could feel it immediately, the disdain that some of the help had for you, like the nursing assistants and the nurses, not every one of them, but um, there was, you know, you knew they saw you as a bad girl. I had to labor in the hallway of the hospital with people going past me back and forth because they only let married women in the birthing room. Really? I mean, like what? Cooties were going to fall off of me or what? So I labored out in the hallway, having no idea of what laboring really was. I never made a peep. And finally, I remember a nurse came and checked on me and she said, oh, my God, why didn't you call me? You're crowning. And I, what's crowning? I don't know what crowning is. OK, OK, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, I've got to get the doctor. So they wheeled me in a room and then they put the ether over my face and I remember nothing else. Um, and the next day, my parents came and they told me I'd had a little boy and um they wouldn't let your parents come when you went into labor. I don't know what all those things were about, but I think it was about trying to keep you from strengthening in any way. Um, if I only remember one gal who said she wasn't giving her baby up, she was about 26. And she found out, of course, after she gave birth, she had twins. And she said, I don't know if I can do this. And um, so they separated her and put her on another wing of the home we were in because 
They didn't want her thinking to infiltrate our thinking. It was mind control, just mind control. It wasn't therapy. It was mind control. When my son was born and I looked at him, you're a mom, aren't you? I am. Leslie, that's why I'm already crying. It just blew me out of the water. I was looking at him and it was me and his birth father looking right back at me. I could see everything. Um, in fact, we bought him some little booties because we were going to christen him and um, they didn't fit. And my mom took them back to the store and got the next size and they didn't fit. And then she looked at me and said, well, that was because my boyfriend had size 13 feet. She said, it's already begun. <laughs> so anyway, um, it was a whole new thing when I laid eyes on him. And that's what I've told every mother I've ever worked for. You may think you made a decision, but when you see that miracle and birth is such a miracle and we all go, oh my goodness, it's a miracle. Although we all experience it, once you experience it, it's like, I can't believe this. But it was like, there's no going back. What am I going to say now? Um, so they did allow me to um, have him christened. And I remember the last time I saw him, he was sleeping, but he had a little smile on his face. And the sister said to me, he's dreaming of angels. And I've always kept that in my mind. Sorry. You'd think no, six years later, but some of it just doesn't go anywhere. I think that's so important to say because it's it's not a just, you know, dust your hands off, we're done. It's a lifetime of, of hurt and loss for, for everyone involved in this. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, you've heard all the drill. They said, go on with your life. This will be a bad dream. You'll forget all this. You won't remember. And I got home and all I did was cry, but I always did it at night or in the bathroom or when I felt like I couldn't keep it back any further. I'd go away because I didn't want my parents to know that I couldn't even forget about it right. I couldn't even get on with my life. Now, years later, when we compared notes, I find that they were grieving too, but none of us were talking to each other about it. And we did not talk to each other for 25, 30 years about it. Is that crazy? Everybody's in pain and we're all acting like nothing ever happened. And that was that era. And that is one of the legacies in my belief that's hurt adoption so bad. We were all kept separate and we were all kept secret. And you know, things that are secret are usually not nice. And for me, I felt like my secret, I'd been such a bad girl because I had been, you know, a really good kid, but um, that I didn't really want anybody to know my secret. Um, but anyway, I went on to college. <laughs> my mother picked out a Catholic girls school. <laughs> I think she was going, I can know how this won't happen again, <laughs> but <laughs> fooled her. Um, I finally, in February of that next school year, my son was born in May. Then I came home for the summer. Then I went off to school. 
And in February of that year, an old high school boyfriend who was getting shipped to Vietnam came to visit with a friend of his. I fixed his friend up with my roommate. We all went to someplace in Birmingham. And I want you to know, we between the guy and I, we drank an entire pint of Rebel Yell. And if you don't know what Rebel Yell is, it's bourbon, cheap bourbon. I don't even know if they make it anymore. But at the end of that pint, I was in blackout. And the next morning when I woke up, I thought, I didn't, did I? Oh, surely I didn't. Sure, No, I'm sure I didn't. I go back to school. About six weeks later, I woke up one morning, growing up one night. And so I knew what it was. And I've just... I can still, if I go back to that time, I literally felt frozen. I was so cold and I was like, what in the world am I going to do? Anybody could forgive somebody once. Is your head screwed on? You know what caused this. And here you are again. Well, I was so ashamed that time, Heidi, I couldn't tell anybody. I just couldn't let it out of my mouth. And um, I do remember the birth father of my second son came by to see me just now. He's just now leaving for Vietnam. Um, and I think I probably was about six months pregnant. And I said to him, and I was had a belly, and I said, I think I'm pregnant. And he said, well, how would I know it's mine? That was the line of the era. How would I know it's mine? And I just shut down, didn't talk to him anymore. There's a great interesting story, if you'll remind me, when I help that son connect with his birth father, I want to, I'd love to tell you the little piece of the story that fits with that. But anyway, he went off. I never told a soul. I told my folks I hated the school. I didn't really, I liked it, but I knew I couldn't go back up there in the fall pregnant. Um, and so I just kept growing and I ate everything that wasn't nailed down. I gained 75 pounds. My first pregnancy, I think I gained 17, 17, 18 pounds because mm -hmm, I had to go back home in a hurry. This time I just kept eating and eating. And it was the day of tent dresses, we called them, and moo moos. Um, and so lucky for me, I could hide in this one of these dresses. Um, I tried to commit suicide, sort of weekly. I was driving my little sports car really, really, really fast around some bad curves, hoping that I would wreck. And then I had this thought, whether it was accurate or not, but the thought was, well, they'll do an autopsy. And even though I'll be dead, everybody will know I was a horrible person before I died. So I can't hide this. Um, so I just kept going to school and working in my family's business. And one day I wasn't feeling well at work. And I went, I told my mom I needed to go home. And I was so out of it by then. It's like, yes, I was conscious. And yes, I could have a conversation with you. But like the you know, the elevator was not going to the top floor. I was just so shut down. So I went home 
and I delivered my son myself alone in the bathroom. And um, my mom came home from work a few hours later. I have no idea the length of time. And I delivered him and I wrapped him up in a towel and I held him and we both went back to sleep. And when she got there, she knocked on the door and she said, let me in. You still don't feel well? And I said, no, mom. And I got to tell you something before you come in. There's a baby in here with me. And she said, okay, open the door. And I did. And Heidi, it was years later that she told me she thought I had kidnapped somebody's baby. She thought I had gone off the old trolley there. I had, but that wasn't the direction I went. Because um, every time I saw a baby, she would know notice that I cried anywhere, you know, shopping or whatever. And she thought maybe I took somebody's child. And then, of course, with all the blood and everything, she realized, nope, that's not the way this baby got here. So he was absolutely silent the whole time he was with me. But then she called a friend of ours who was a doctor and they came over and they cut the cord and did all that. And the minute they moved him, if anybody ever doubts about birth trauma, Lord, the child had been through enough, but he started to scream and he never stopped. They kept him down uh, in my parents' room and he screamed all night long without pause. So the doctor's wife came back the next day and said, could I take him for you? And my mother said, this is really hard. And so nobody asked me. They just took him to an adoption agency. And um, so there was the second one. That was a Saturday on Monday, I was back at college. I was wrapped in foam rubber. My parents wrapped foam rubber around my belly so that it wouldn't look like I lost 25 pounds over the weekend. Um, and then for a couple of weeks, they'd take a layer of the foam rubber off. And uh, finally, I said, enough with that chip. Excuse my French. But, you know, let's not do that. And I just went on to school. And again, we never spoke of it. It just like it never happened. And so I then the next year did go off to a big state school. And um, I just figured now here we're coming right up upon the sexual revolution, mind you, because we're 67, 68. Mm -hmm. And I became what I laughingly called a born-again virgin. I said, I know what happens if you do those things. And so we're not going there. And all my friends, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Like, no, thank you. Um, so friends were getting abortions. Friends were, you know, having a lot of fun. And that was just not my path. I just buckled down and did the best I could in school because I figured that that was one way I could redeem myself. I was a good person. I was, you know, I had brains. <laughs> I didn't feel like it looked like it before that, but I did. And, um, and I remember somewhere in college thinking, I wonder if I could help somebody because if I've survived this, then I might be able to help somebody else and stand there and witness with them when they're going through their worst times in life. And so I became a clinical social worker. 
and then moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where I lived for the entirety of my career. We just retired a couple of years ago up to Asheville, North Carolina. But um, I practiced. I didn't practice anywhere at all around adoption. I just didn't even want to hear about it. But I will say, let me think how that happened. Oh, okay. So there, here comes my intersection with my twins. When I was 40, I met someone and we decided to get married. And I was 41 when we got married. He'd never been married. He was same age. And um, we really wanted to have children. I, I had this burning feeling. I wanted to have a child. I wanted to raise a child. I wanted to have that experience. So we went to an infertility clinic because I was 41 just to get everything checked out. And um, I had, um, my tubes had gotten blocked over the years, my fallopian tubes. So they recommended we do in vitro using my husband's sperm, my eggs, but put them together in the Petri dish. And we did. And I got pregnant immediately. But I also began to notice in the fertility industry what they were doing and what they were telling their clients. And, you know, no need to tell them that you had a sperm donor. No, no, no. That may, that may make their relationship with their father not as good. You know, uh-uh, don't tell them anything. You're carrying the pregnancy. There's no need to know. And I'm like looking at these guys like, you guys are medical doctors, right? Medical? Like, this, this child has a different set of DNA than the parents and you're not telling them, but no, no, no. They were doing every mistake adoption ever did, Heidi, all over again. So um, that was where that awareness came from. Then when my twins were about 18 months old, I realized I was getting more and more depressed. And it was like, how can this be? I had boy girl twins I hit the jackpot for a woman at 43 um, to have a whole family. I carried till my due date. My son weighed almost nine pounds and my daughter was six, six and a half. It was like, I did beautifully with the pregnancy, but after they were here, I could feel myself. I just kept sinking and I, I felt like I couldn't get close to them. So that's what got my buns back in therapy again. I was in therapy on and off my whole life. But um, I came home from therapy one day and said to my husband, uh, I think I'm going to have to find the boys. And he said, oh, really? Well, we've been married three years. We have 18-month-old <laughs> twins. <laughs> we've been on quite a ride. He said, suppose we could wait till the twins get in kindergarten? before you started? <laughs> I said, oh, sure, sure. But, um, so, and that was, ended up being super lucky for me because I read everything I could get my hands on. I got in a support group. I went to CUB, which is Concerned United Birth Parents for the first time. And it was like, oh my gosh, here are all these other wonderful people and this happened to them. I just couldn't believe the support I got by being with my tribe. 
you know, mm-hmm. there were women in there that had been judges. There was an attorney. There was a this, there was a that. And I was like, these are really nice people. Like, it's a big surprise. So you see what my inner notion was of people who did this awful thing like me. And, and of course, there were women there, many who gave up two. And I met a woman who gave up three. It was before birth control. Once you have sex, as I tell parents of adolescents all the time, there's no getting that thing back in the barn again. You know, once you've been there, you're probably going to go back. Uh, In fact, when I went to search, the nun at the maternity home said to me, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry to hear you had another child. She said, I can't tell you the number of girls that happened to. You were trying to fill the void. And I thought, I wish you'd have told me that then. I had no idea that could happen again. But uh, she said, well, and a lot of them got married. And of course, a lot of them had abortions. And, you know, some gave up more than one. And some on the second time said, no way will I ever give away another child and raise them, no, no matter what kind of support they had. So then I did start searching. Um. But I had all this preparation that that was so lucky because I got to learn from everybody else's mistakes. You know, don't do this. this." (laughs) And that really helped me. That's the two things I help people with today are reunion is my biggie that I help people going through. Um, And then I have another specialty. That'll be a whole nother uh, edition of GSA. Have you heard of GSA? Do you know? I have not. No, I do not. Genetic sexual attraction. And um, that's all I'm going to say about that right now. It's a whole. (laughs) I'm almost almost scared to Google that, Leslie. (laughs) I was going to say, you can Google it and I'll send you an article later. Um, Yeah. And how about some of that bourbon, maybe? <laughs> and a little rebel yell if they're still making it i'll send you a oh yeah yell, oh my gosh yes let's do that let's do that thing yeah. oh my goodness yeah. no so, i'm so i am so grateful to you for sharing and and reliving that emotional pain with us because i think that it's very important for people to understand the circumstances because i think a lot of adoptees myself included I just felt like I was kind of tossed away. No big deal. Sure. And and there's a lot of anger and sadness and things that, and I think if we can really hear the stories and understand the trauma and the dynamics, yeah. Yeah. If there's a way to do that, maybe that's a space where some healing can occur. And I'm not a therapist. I'm just guessing. Absolutely. And I hear people today say, well, what about those women who don't want their children? I've worked in this area 46 years. I met one woman ever in my life that said, I never thought I'd be a parent. I really don't think I'd be a good parent. Um, I'm just not parent material. One woman, and I've seen many, many women who are pregnant and trying to figure out what to do. They don't not want their children, they're in a crisis. And today it's financial and emotional support. 
Mm-hmm. In the Netherlands, I think it is, if a single mother gives birth, they give her a, a whole kit of a um, bassinet and a few clothes and diapers. Anyway, it totals $500. And those mothers are able to raise their children. So there's a $500 gift in between uh, a mother sometimes being able to raise and not being able to raise. I was in my 50s when one day I went, oh my gosh, my sister had always said to me, Leslie, I did exactly what you did. The only difference was I still had a wedding ring on. Remember the little one I told you I was making baby clothes for? Yes. Two. My sister got married right after high school and they got a divorce within about three years Her husband had stopped by to visit on his way to spring break once. Her not yet ex, but in the process of becoming ex. And she got pregnant. But because she wasn't divorced, talk about a technicality. Mm. She was able to raise her child because everybody knew she'd been married legally. Okay. She came home to live with my parents. This never dawned on me until... 10 or 15 years ago, and my parents helped her. And by the time my little niece was three, she had met a really great man and married him. And that little girl is probably the most successful person in our family in terms of she's just incredibly delightful. And she's been super successful at a career. So you see what you can do when you have help? There was my sister at home with a baby um, and she did it. And she used to say to me, I'm in the same boat as you. And, but I couldn't see it um, until much, much later. So. Yeah. yeah. It's very, very eye opening to say the least. And Leslie, I, I wonder if you could talk to us about your experience finding your sons mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe share if you feel comfortable the outcome of those reunions, you know, and maybe because you are an expert in reunion, it would be really wonderful if we could just spend a little bit of time in that space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, so I just read and just educated myself for those three or four years until the kids got to kindergarten. And I say all the time, I have a degree in adoption. I don't have the sheepskin to prove it to you. I've never studied any topic as in-depth as I have this one. But so once the kids were in school, I did start searching. And at some point, well, they were in kindergarten when I told them that they had these older brothers. And of course, I had several therapist friends who said, Leslie, I can't believe you're doing that. You're going to scare them to death. They're going to think you're going to give them up. And I said, you know, give me a little credit for talking with them very regularly, telling them what happened. And they were like, oh, all over it. You know, are we going to find our brothers and all this? But be careful what you tell children, because, of course, they told their school teachers and oh, great. Oh, nice. <laughs> knew the whole school was like, we heard you're looking for Elliot and Annalise's brothers. And I said, yes. And when we eventually found them, 
my daughter was in the third grade and her teacher said, could, could she bring him to show and tell? And of course, this is my oldest son and he's very, very affable and he's the neatest guy. And he came and he sat in the little chair in the front of the room with show and tell um, that Annalise had just found her big brother. But the good news for me, Heidi, was they were both searching. It doesn't get any better than that. When they're searching and you're searching, everybody wants to meet or connect or, you know, you don't know what to what degree, but at least, you know, everybody is looking for a meeting of some sort. And I actually, I, I say to people all the time, I do have a deep faith because it's all that kept me alive for years. Um, and I remember when I did have my reunion with my first son um, thinking, oh my God, I was so upended and the emotions were just unbelievable. And I thought, Lord, what if all the other um, lines I had put out to find my second son suddenly came to fruition? I don't know, I can do this. And I prayed and I said, God, just give me one year, one year to adjust to this. I am not kidding when I say this, one year, and one day later, I got a phone call. And uh, somebody said, I'm a social worker in Birmingham, Alabama, and are you sitting down? And I knew immediately what it was. And that was my other son. So we had good reunions. Um, I'm just so lucky. My, my oldest son was the youngest adopted into a family of six kids. So adoption was just natural. He said it. their house was like the UN, you know, everybody was from everywhere and all these different personalities. Um, and then my younger son, the one that I delivered myself, um, he and I had a great reunion. In fact, when I first met him, I said, um, they told me you were an artist or something. The intermediary had said he was into some kind of art. And he said, no, not an artist, I'm into music. And I said, music, I immediately lit up. I said, what kind? And he said, oh, nobody my age likes it. I said, what is it? And he said, jazz. And I said, my dad was a jazz musician. I grew up, you know, with jazz. And um, in fact, I was in a gospel choir for 20 years. Um, and he said, oh, get out of here. He said, I remember the first time I walked into the student center and they were playing Miles Davis, kind of blue. And he said, I just stopped. It was like, so I just, I, I had to go get the album. And I said, well, sweetie, you listen to it a lot because I would lay on the sofa and play Miles Davis with tears rolling down my cheek wondering what the heck am I going to do here? So anyway, DNA. <laughs> but now the sum total of the reunions is that after 19 years, that son has cut me off. Um, and I still have a very good relationship with my oldest son. And the younger one, he, he would... Um, the older one and I can discuss adoption. I'm not going to say we get to the deepest depths in the world, but we can talk about it, the hard parts. Like one time he was, I was visiting him and he was putting his little boy to bed and he said, oh no, he asked me, 
why did um, G Mama give you away? And I sat there and I said, what did you tell him? Mm-hmm. And he said, it wasn't easy. And I said, no, because there's no good answer for that. Um, but that's the kind of conversation we're able to have. My younger son, do not talk about adoption. It didn't affect him at all. So I said, okay. <laughs> and we never did. And see, that's part of what I think keeps us from healing. If you don't let this kind of trauma out somewhere, dear God, it festers inside. So eventually he cut contact with me. And I said, of my two sons, I totally understand why he did. I'm sorry. I, you know, cried about it and I feel loss about it. And the one thing that makes it easier is I really understand why he did it. Mm. I do. I get it. And I wish we could talk, but I'm not sure that would fix anything. But um, we can't, obviously. And um, so the good news is, though, he stayed in contact with my twins. He visited my son in Germany when he was over there. And so I've said, if nothing else, if he has that link to some of his heritage, that's a good thing. His mother and I were great friends and she was delightful. And she said, oh, now there'll be somebody here for him when I'm gone. But I don't think that's the case. If he ever has a change of heart, I've let him know the door's open. I used to send him a gift every birthday and Christmas, but he started returning them. So um, I haven't been able to do that anymore. But mm. I've I've been lucky. I've had a good run <laughs> with reunions. And um, like I said, I definitely understand my son, what he must have experienced in utero. It's hard for any mother to think that, you know, they participated in that. I was a ripe old 18 and a half year old and I didn't know Jack. I'm so sorry that all of you had to experience that. And I think there's so much we can all learn by listening to to the real pain and the trauma that exists in all of these spaces. You know, we hope that there are a lot of different people listening out there, Leslie, adoptive parents, adoptees, birth moms. And as we wrap things up, you've given us so much of your personal story and, and weaved it in with your professional life. And I think that's so helpful. What would you like to say if you kind of had to summarize it, if, if you wanted to educate people that may not be aware of the loss and trauma? Right. One of the things that appealed to me when you called was that you wanted to get everybody's story, everybody in the family of adoption. And that was the first thing I noticed, Heidi, when I came into adoption advocacy. And I do that because that's what heals me. The more I try to help somebody else or, you know, new mothers who are trying to make these decisions, that's healing for me. But what I noticed was that the family of adoption is so splintered. You know, birth mothers think that the adoptive parents got the goods, they had the good time and, you know, this, that and the other. Well, I worked with adoptive parents that's teenagers were boinking out of control and they had no idea that was going to happen. And, you know, they'd say, is this just adolescence? And I'd say on steroids, because when you're adopted, uh, well, the task of adolescence when you're not adopted 
is to find your own identity. And so when you're adopted and you don't have all the pieces, it makes it even harder. So I don't believe that all adoptive parents had some easy thing. I believe the industry kept us apart, put all this secrecy down. You guys didn't have any choice in the matter whatsoever, but you were supposed to be the blank little slates who, you know, you one family was as good as another. That's not so. And what I would like is for all the different segments to find some ways to come together and educate each other. We shouldn't be enemies with one another, okay? I love the adoptee movement that's coming so strong about adoptees getting a voice and adoptees, adoptee therapists seeing adoptees. That's fabulous. I know. I've seen adoptees. But I'm not the best person because they get to a level of their work where they really need to get in the anger and the rage. And, you know, here sits nice old Leslie across on the couch and they may feel like they really can't let loose no matter what I've told them. But I just think all of us have to learn to have some respect for one another and educate. The other strong force that I've worked with is when adoptive parents finally get it, as we call it in, <laughs> in adoption land, oh my God, they're some of the best advocates in the world. If they get it, they will tell other parents, I had no idea. I thought I was saving an orphan. Okay, because that's the story they got. So I wish we could find a way to come together on the things we can agree on. It's fine not to agree on everything, but I think we all have to be educated. Even today, it breaks my heart when adoptions occur. I'm working with a family to help them have a more open adoption with their birth mother. I'm the one that's had to break the news to them. The child's only a year old. That adoption is based on trauma and pain. And they're like, huh? The mother was still under the illusion that, you know, I did the best thing possible for my child. I gave her two sets of parents. Um, and the couple, I don't want to stomp on your joy, as I always say to people, but we who are out here and do post-adoption services kind of makes us mad. They don't prepare you at all. They aren't telling you the truth of what is gonna, what's down the road. So I have to sit there and think, okay, when can I come in and break the bubble a little bit? Because what I say to families is you can't feel the joy until you get the trauma cleared up and out a little bit. You don't get the good times without processing the bad times. So that's what I wish. I wish all facets of the adoption family would get better educated in fact, so educated, I can say this now, I couldn't used to say this, that adoption becomes extinct. I tell people, I came around in the 70s and 80s was my early career, and I saw some tough cases. And one of the things I did in many instances was help families get through sexual abuse in their family system and stay together. Why? Because what we found is if the child reported sexual abuse 
And then the father got kicked out of the home or the stepfather, whichever it might be. And I act like it's always a man, but it mostly is. And um, if they got kicked out of the home or they got sent to prison, the child felt guilty because the family was struggling. So then it was like, it's all on my back. If I hadn't told the secret, our whole family wouldn't have broken up. So the theory we operated with was keep the family together, but do some very intensive therapy. We never want a child to be unsafe. But guess what? When you start talking about secrets, it makes you safer and you can talk about them again if anything untoward happens. And if I could help families stay together that had been through that kind of trauma, why wouldn't we help families stay together now? What's the deal? We need to help women. International adoption, it's all about poverty and lack of agency for women. In fact, I often say adoption is a feminist issue, but don't get me started on that track. (laughs) (laughs) That's another podcast and some more bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Leslie, this time with you has been extraordinary. You're so transparent and open. And I really appreciate the fact that you could have just kept your shame and your secrecy and your pain, and instead you've used it to expand healing. And I just want to say from my heart to yours, I'm so grateful to you. And I know that you said you were going through grief and you decided to come here and speak your truth. And I want to say from thank you again for for that. I think what you said about that was really, really important. You said, I I want to speak during this time of grief. Yes. My daughter just had her first child, and that brought up a whole lot of grief again. And um, and at this time, I'm now going to be, I'm 73, but pushing that 74. As I went through another bout of depression, it was like all of this was for no reason. I lost my babies, and their lives were horribly disrupted. They both have had great struggles in their lives, and they both turned out beautifully, don't get me wrong, the struggles inside, Um, but it was for no reason. My niece is doing stellar. If I'd had support, or any mother had support, this doesn't have to happen, and that's why I want to speak, because it doesn't need to happen, not on the level it's happening. I think in England a few years ago, they did 12 adoptions in the entire year. Okay. That's the way it needs to be. Yes. In the entire country in the year, they did 12 adoptions. That's what needs to be happening. We do not need to be separated. I keep saying we don't need post-adoption services if we don't traumatize everybody to begin with. Come on. So. I know it all feels logical, but. (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh, Leslie. Yeah. Well, I'm getting, I'm getting, well, first of all, I'm going to Google some, some things. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I appreciate my time with you, Leslie. I'm so glad to be connected with you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.